The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Let's read again. Uh, Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. I'm going to read it in my NASB, and then I'm going to read it in the translation. It's on the top of your little yellow sheet there. It's a little more literal, a little more awkward, but it gives you some a sense of the text that the other one doesn't give you. So we'll read NASB first, which I've got. It says this, verse 14 of chapter 3 of Ephesians. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And I'm going to read it in a different translation. The one that's on the little yellow sheet there. You can follow along if you want. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named, so that he would grant you out of the riches of his glory to become strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, and Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded in love, so that you may possess sufficient strength to grasp with all the saints what is the width and length and height and depth, and to know the, lo- the knowledge surpassing love of Christ, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able on behalf of all to do beyond the furthest degree which we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to refer back to that little uh, verse there a little later on so you can keep it handy. I'm going to recap what we've done and seen in in, uh, this little prayer of uh, Paul's. We saw, first of all, the motive to pray is God's work to save and build up the church. Paul says in verse 14, for this reason. And we saw that, that this reason means everything that goes back before that. All the things he said up to this point form the basis of his reason. God blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in chapter 1. God made us alive who are dead in sin in chapter 2. And God is building the church, which is one new body in Christ, also in chapter 2. And that is the reason why we pray. We pray because God blesses. We pray because God saves And we pray because God is building that church. Those three things cover the whole broad range of Christianity and why it is that we should be praying for one another. Secondly, the attitude for prayer is humility. He says also in verse 14, I bow my knees 
God rejects the proud and turns his anger towards them. But God turns his face and his gaze of kindness towards the humble. The attitude that we come before the Father when we pray is an attitude of humility. We come remembering who he is and who we are. Thirdly, the freedom we have in prayer is from our adoption by the Father. He calls him the Father or my Father. We pray to one who is our adopted Father. He has adopted us into his family. We have freedom of immediate, unhindered access into the very presence of God our Father. And so our freedom to pray is we're part of the family of God. That's a tremendous freedom, isn't it? You don't go into your neighbor's house, just walk up to your neighbor's door, open the door, walk your way in, help yourself to something, drink out of the fridge and some food out of the fridge and, and go and sit down and start watching his TV and rifling through his cupboards because he's your neighbor. He's not your family. If he comes home and finds you doing that, you might get into some trouble with the police. But I can go home to my mom and dad's house and I can go in the front door and I can help myself to something out of mom's fridge. She expects me to do that whenever I'm there. And I can just be at home there. That's my father's house. And you and I, as brothers and sisters, as part of the family of God, have freedom to come into the very presence of God and pray. Fourthly, our joy that we have in prayer is God's sovereignty overall. He says in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, or every fatherhood. What he's showing us there is every single person in this world has their source and their origin in the creating hand of God. Nobody who is alive here today, if you trace your ancestry back long enough and far enough, eventually you're going to get right back to Adam and God created him. God created you. And God who is creator and judge and king is sovereign over all the affairs of men. Every single person ever born, ever will be born, ever has been born, is under the sovereign control of God. Everything that happens in this world is under the sovereign hand of God. And when we pray, we're not praying to some distant uh, subordinate. We're praying to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're praying to the one who has the power to act on our behalf unhindered. He has full authority to act in the lives of each other. So we have a joy in that because we're praying to one who can answer and one who does answer. Now I want you to notice also, get your little yellow sheet out there, uh, the Paul's purposes in prayer. And what I did was, you notice I bold texted uh, three so that's okay. So you have so that he may grant you, and then further down to the the uh, that side, so that you may possess sufficient strength, and the second line from the bottom, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. In the original text, they're what they called hina clauses. So the Greeks use a little phrase, a little word called a hina, and it gives you the idea of purpose. So that so Paul prays for three different purposes. In verse 16, I bow my knees, that's praying, so that God would grant us two things. I underlined, to be strengthened and Christ to dwell. Those are what we call infinitives. 
If you don't remember your English grammar, don't worry about it. It's just a verb that has a little two in front of it. So he asked that God would strengthen us, and he asked that Christ would dwell within our hearts, and then he asked that we would grasp with all the saints the width and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. Those are Paul's specific things that he is asking for in prayer. So we pray for each other from Ephesians 3.14. We can pray, oh God, I pray that you would strengthen the people of Noble Park with power through your spirit in the inner person. I pray, oh God, that Christ would dwell in their hearts in the fullest and richest measure, that they would know Christ deeply and intimately. We saw that last week. And he also prays, the third thing there, is that we may have sufficient strength to grasp. Now, you may have the word to comprehend in your, in your Bible. It's the same idea. He's praying that we will have strength to grasp the love of Christ. Which brings us to our message for this morning. But before I do that, I just want to sum up again really quickly. Reasons to pray. Why should we pray? Well, here's four reasons right out of the text. Pray that God would strengthen us. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how many years you've been walking with the Lord. I don't care if you've walked with the Lord for 150 years. You still need to be strengthened through His Spirit in your inner man. We all need it. We're all weak and failing and we stumble constantly. And so one of the ways we can help each other is to pray that God would strengthen us through His Holy Spirit in the inner man that we might finish the journey. We pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts. We said this last week. I I found last week tremendously difficult and tremendously joyful to preach last week. The idea, the biblical concept that we are called into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And God desires to have the deepest and most intimate and most connected relationship with us that is possible. He desires for that relationship like a glass of water, not to be half full, not to be three quarters full, but to be full and overflowing with him. And so Paul prays that we would have the strength for Christ to dwell in our hearts to the fullest, richest extent that is possible. And thus he prays. And we'll be filled with the fullness of God. Well, what I want to focus on this morning is what he says in verse number 18, that we may be able to comprehend or grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So the main point for the message today is simply this. Pray for each other so that we may all possess sufficient strength to grasp and know the immensity of Christ's love. And I have to stop and give credit. Uh, I don't like the idea of plagiarizing ever. And I was in my research this week, I came across a little uh, podcast. It's called Ask Pastor John. It's John Piper does this little thing where they ask him a question, and in about 10 minutes, he gives you a theological answer to the question. And someone asked, what is God's love? And he gave a great answer. So I went through and I painstakingly took down what he said, and I worked it in our passage. I've rephrased a little bit, but the outline is basically his, and all the feeling is mine, if you like, okay? So I don't want to take credit for what he's done. He did that, and I'm just using it to fill out, or using it as a framework to preach this message this morning. So then, what is God's love? Well, before we can consider the immensity of Christ's love, we have to understand the difference between human love and divine love. Are they the same sort of love? And the answer is no. 
Human love is more based on the loveliness of the object that's being loved. I love my wife because she's godly and kind and gracious and loving and warm. I love my kids because they're so much more like their mom and not at all like me, even though they kind of look like me. I love my friends because they're generous and trustworthy and helpful and faithful and loyal. You see, my love for somebody or something is based in the loveliness of that person. But God's love is not the same. God does not love us because of the loveliness of each of us. Because frankly, there's nothing in us that is lovely that God would choose to love us. God's love works so that the recipient of his love is able to see the loveliness of the giver. Okay, imagine this. We'll try to figure out a little illustration, a little story to kind of describe it. Imagine the most beautiful girl in all the world. If you're a husband, you should be thinking of your wife. Okay, so imagine the most beautiful girl in the world. She's lovely in every way. She's kindness and patience and sweetness. And one day she meets the most ugly man who ever walked. He is ugly in face and in form and in character. He's bitter and hating and self-centered. He's repulsed and he is repulsive. And the ugly man has been blindfolded from a very young age by others so that he cannot see the depth and the darkness of his own ugliness. But neither can he see how beautiful this girl is that he has just met. The girl in love for him, reaches out and she unties the back of the blindfold and the blindfold falls away from his eyes. And in that moment, he can see two things absolutely clearly. He can see both how ugly he is. He can see the the horror of his form. He's maybe like Quasimodo in the story, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And yet in the very same moment that the blindfold falls away, he's able to see with his eyes the beauty the loveliness of the woman who has set him free and unblindfolded him. That is loving the way that God loves. God's love can be defined like this. It's his beautiful and unrestrained desire toward us who are his undeserving enemies so that he paid the highest price, namely Jesus' death on a cross, to achieve our greatest possible good that is eternal life i read to you again god's love can be defined like this it is his beautiful and unrestrained desire toward us we who is undeserving enemies that god paid the highest price namely jesus death on a cross to achieve our greatest possible good which is eternal life and what we're going to do now is take the four dimensions that Paul uses in verse 18 to unpack all of this. How immense is the love of Christ? Well, first of all, how broad is Christ's love to the undeserving? You got this in the note sheet there. Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's love can be measured by the degree to which we don't deserve to be loved. The immensity of Christ's love is demonstrated by his dying for those who are still sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners are rebels against God. 
Sinners break God's rules. Sinners defy God's authority. And sinners like us spit in God's face every time that we commit sin. Sinners do not deserve God's love. Sinners by themselves cannot ever deserve God's love. Christ did not wait, by the way, until we felt bad or we felt sorry or we were repentant, or we maybe had made some sort of vow to stop sinning. He didn't wait till that point and then die for us. No, the Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's love was displayed by dying for people who are so undeserving of it. We were still sinning when he died. One of the scenes on the cross that always just staggers my mind is Jesus is being nailed to the cross. And he's lifted up off the ground. He's hanging there. And what does he cry out? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He can't forgive them himself because he is now being made sin. He must cry to his father to forgive them because they're doing those things to him. Christ's love is displayed by him dying even for those who handled the scourge. By even for those who died, who drove the nails, sorry. Even for those like us who self-righteously think if we had been there, we would not have participated in his death. i got to tell you, if I had been there, I don't think I would have been any different than the rest of the crowd. I would have been shouting just as loud as they were. Crucify him, crucify him. And he died for us who did not deserve that he loved us in dying for us, for those who did not deserve it. Our undeservedness magnifies and amplifies the love and the grace of God. Consider for a second, if we had been deserving of God's love, would it have been fully love that Christ displayed when he died? If we had been deserving of his love, When he hung himself on those nails and he died, it would have been a little bit of obligation. You know, Khan's a great guy. He's a lovely guy. You know what? He he deserves to be saved, so I must go through the motions of saving Khan by dying on a cross. That changes it from love and it blends it with obligation. It becomes almost a law, a contract. If we had been deserving of being saved, Christ's death would have been more a matter of justice and fairness. But praise God that we are not worthy of being saved. Because being undeserving of Christ's love, it magnifies <clears throat> excuse me, and amplifies that love so much more. Our undeservedness is seen by the fact that there is nothing in us worthy of loving or being or saving. Not one of us, the Bible says, seeks for God without God's intervention. Not one of us seeks for God on our own unless God first takes His Holy Spirit and begins to draw us back to Him. Not one of us has the slightest care for God before God began to draw us to Him. Even the best And the greatest of deeds that we do are as filthy, dirty, stinking rags before God. The broadness of Christ's love is seen by the fact that there weren't some deserving and some undeserving. All are undeserving. Neither the terrorist nor his victims deserve God's love. 
Neither the billionaire nor the bankrupt deserve his love. Neither the PhD or the illiterate person deserve his love. The broadness of Christ's love is seen by the fact that none, anywhere, anytime, any place were deserving of it. He loved us who deserve nothing but God's full fury for our sin. Christ in love for his undeserving enemies died to remove our sin and guilt and shame which blinds us from seeing the unparalleled glory of God in the face of Christ. Pray, brothers and sisters. Pray for each other that we may have the sufficient strength to begin to grasp the love of Christ for us who are utterly undeserving. I was sitting here on Friday afternoon thinking about this one idea. I began to meditate on the fact of just how undeserving I am of Christ's love. I found myself in tears at my desk. A few minutes. Start meditating on the idea of what Christ paid. We'll look at that in a second. The love that paid the highest price to give us our ultimate good. Brothers and sisters, pray for each other that we will all have the strength the sufficient spiritual strength in our inner man to begin to grasp the breadth and the height and the length and the depth of Christ's love, love to the undeserving. When you begin to do that, it magnifies and amplifies God's grace beyond anything you can imagine. And that's why we need the spiritual strength to do it. Pray so that as we can comprehend such immense love, we will forgive each other quickly. Brothers and sisters, listen. The Bible says very clearly that if we will not forgive those who sin against us, our Father will not forgive us. Someone wrongs you. It happens to all of us. Someone wrongs you. And you think, oh, you know, that guy, I'm just going to go over there and clean his clock, you know. And he comes back to you and he says, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, I made a mistake. I, I did this thing. And, and, and we think, okay, well, you know, I, I guess I'll forgive you. And we're so grudging about it. Peter asked the Lord Jesus one day, how often should I forgive my brother when he comes to me and says, I, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Seven times, Peter says, thinking maybe the Lord would think, wow, Peter, you're pretty spiritual. Seven times. And the Lord said, no, 70 times seven, Peter. I tried to figure that out one day. Seven times in a day, in an eight-hour day, it's about once every hour and ten minutes. The same person comes back to you. Oh, Nelson, I'm so sorry. You know, I did this thing. I just need to be forgiven. Oh, okay. An hour later. Now I need to talk to you again. I did this other thing. I need to be forgiven. An hour and a ten minutes. Well, by the third time, I'm going, just a moment, you know. Are you really sorry? Because you keep coming back, and it just seems like you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And our indignation rises up because we think somehow that we are better. And when we realize in a moment that we were absolutely undeserving of Christ's love and he loved us to a degree beyond anything that our minds and our hearts can even begin to understand, all of a sudden we realize, who am I to say no? And my brother comes back to me on the 469th time in the day and says, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. Please forgive me. 
we are to give him with the same level of love and grace and kindness. How often do we go to the Lord in a day and say, Lord, forgive me, I did this. The Lord is never slow in his forgiveness. And brothers and sisters, when we realize how undeserving we are of Christ's love, and yet he loved us immensely, it makes forgiveness so much easier and so much simpler. Let's move on. We won't get through this today. I can see it already. How high is Christ's love paying the ultimate price? What sort of price will we pay to demonstrate love? This is February, right? It's Valentine's Day when we go out and we, and we buy something for our loved ones. We go and spend money. I used to get in trouble with Heather's dad because he'd go out and buy carnations for Heather's mom. And, and she would come home and she'd have this big thing like this. In Canada, they make bouquets of flowers. Huge. And she'd walk in the door with, you know, 12 long stem red roses. And I'd come to pick her up. I'd in my suit and tie, you know, back when I was sort of skinny. And, and, and all ready to go out for dinner. And he'd open the door. I want a word with you. I was, what? And he'd say, you gave my daughter 12 long stem red roses. And I only got her mom carnations. And then, he'd, and then we started to laugh, right? And it would be funny. And I was willing to spend, you know, back then it was, what, 100 bucks or something for 12 long stem red roses to be delivered. Maybe it's a sparkling diamond ring. We were watching uh, the Federer last week winning the, the uh, tennis, and the two most stressed people in the, all of the city of Melbourne were Mirka Federer and my wife, because they both want Federer to win more than anybody else alive. And halfway through this, this tennis match, the, the camera panned down, and this big bling popped off her finger, right? And she goes, oh, did you see her ring? And so she goes on the internet and scrolls up and pulls up this rock, right? It's like this big, it looks like, on her finger. This giant rock. Guy makes $110 million. He can buy a rock like that, I guess. And he decided to show and demonstrate his love for his wife by buying this great, big, beautiful rock and putting it on her finger. Comes with an arm guard, and it's so big. What are we willing to pay to demonstrate love? The famous Taj Mahal. Beautiful architectural building built by a man who loved his wife immensely. Lifelong commitments to love our true love. Maybe we sacrifice a kidney. Maybe we sacrifice time or money or effort to display love in some way or form or another. The immensity of Christ's love can be measured by the amount which we was willing to pay in order to achieve our greatest good. Stop and think about that. Christ died on a cross to achieve our greatest good. We who were immensely undeserving, utterly undeserving. I'm sure Merker loves Roger. And there is a great relationship there. And he buys it for her and he loves her. That, that's fine. But we were utterly undeserving, and Christ was willing to pay a price infinitely high. 
in order that we might have the greatest good. The Bible says in John 15, 13, Jesus said to his disciples, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. The Bible says in John 3, 16, you all know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There is no higher expression of love than to sacrifice what can never be regained to display love. Praise God. Christ's death lasted only three days because death had no hold over him. And yet it was the ultimately highest price that anyone could ever pay for another. You can take a drop of my drop blood and a drop of Porchek's blood and put them on the table together and they look pretty much the same. They're, they're, they're human blood. There's no difference. One drop of Christ's blood, there is nothing like it in all the world because he is the son of the living God. And he was willing to shed his blood. There is no higher expression of love than what Christ did. For Christ's death on a cross meant infinitely more. He did not die in the arms of a loved one. He died nailed to a cross, separated from his family and his friends. Christ did not die heavily sedated on a hospital bed. He died alone, exposed, in full grasp of all his senses as he endured the pain of the nails and the scourging and the cross. But far beyond the pain of the nails and the thorns and all of that was the pain he endured of being separated from his Father. Consider your longest friend in all the world. I know who she is. She's sitting in this room. And the, the depth of intimacy and love that you share with that friend. Imagine that a relationship that went back for eternity. And in a moment in a cross, the sun was darkened. And I believe the reason why God drew the shade so we couldn't see the face of the Savior on the cross. And he cried out in the agony of his soul, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was willing that that relationship should be broken for a time. And we often sing that song, The Father turns his face away. No, he didn't. Actually, the Bible makes it very clear that God turned his full face of fury and anger against the son who he had just made sin and poured out all of his wrath that rightly was ours on Christ. Death on the cross meant suffering, the breaking of a relationship that had eternity as its past and eternity still as its future. And for three hours on the cross, there was a broke breakdown there. No, Jesus did not stop being God. But for a time he was forsaken, unlike any of us has ever experienced. He was made sin for us, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.31. He was forsaken by his father. He was hated by his own people. He was denied by his friends, both Peter and Judas. He was abandoned by his disciples. He was subjected to the depraved cruelty of humanity at its basest level being isolated and alone beyond anything man can comprehend, an eternity of unbroken, intimate fellowship of love between Father, Son, and Spirit was broken. That was the price that God paid to display His love to us to achieve our greatest good. How much does Christ love you? There's no answer to that question. 
And it's immense love. It's a love beyond our human comprehending. But yet Paul says, I pray so that they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. I think I told you the story before. Uh, Moody. Dwight L. Moody, the famous American evangelist, was walking down the street in Chicago where he lives. And the full idea, or as much as he could grasp, of the idea of the love of God hit him as he was walking along the street. And he was so bowled over, he literally fell to his knees on the ground. And in one story, he crawled on his hands and knees all the way home to his house in Chicago. He went into an inner room and he shut the door and he didn't come out for two or three days. And they could hear him inside the room weeping and crying and praying and enjoying and loving his God, he grasped in a moment something of the love of God for him. And Paul says, I pray. I pray that we may have the strength to begin to grasp something of the love of Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you want to know what to pray for each other? Pray that. Pray and plead with God that all of us would have the strength. Like, like a flea trying to put his arms around a giant beach ball. is like us trying to grasp something of the love of Christ. Pray for each other. We'll have that strength to grasp it. Imagine for a moment what a difference it would make if we began to grasp something of the love of Christ for us. Paul says, the love of Christ compels or constrains me to go and serve. Imagine the love of Christ, if we could grasp a little bit of the love of Christ, how much different would our service for God be? How much different would our love for one another be? Talking about strife and turmoil inside the house of God. Yes, I think in a certain sense it's always going to be some form of strife and turmoil inside the house of God. But how much reduced would it be? How many of the trivial, superficial little things that we break fellowship with one another over would be done away with because of the love of Christ that we both understood a little bit of? If we understood how undeserving we are and how great the price that he paid is for us. How much different would our lives as Christians be? Brothers and sisters, pray. Pray for each other and plead with God that we would all grasp something of the love of Christ. I want to try and just do the last, the second last one. How long is Christ's love obtaining our ultimate good? John 3.16 again says, For God so loved the world. Why? that we would have eternal life. What is our greatest good? You know, as, as sometimes as parents, we think, well, we love our kids, so we're going to do this for them. Or I love this person, so I'll do this thing for them. But the love of Christ gives us what is ultimately for our best, not what we wanted. You can see it even in the lives of the Jews in Jesus' day. What they desperately wanted was somebody to get rid of the Roman boot so they could be set free to be a kingdom again and have a king rule over them. They were waiting for Jesus when he walked or he rode the donkey into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were celebrating what they thought was their coming king and he was going to push the Romans out. 
That's what they wanted. And sometimes we get the idea that love is giving somebody else what they want. But the ultimate display of love is not giving each other what we want. The ultimate display of love is giving what the other person needs. What is their greatest good? And God said the greatest good for Israel is not to be set free from the Romans. The greatest good for all the slaves in the Roman Empire was not to be immediately set free from their chains around their feet and their necks. He said the greatest good that I can achieve for all mankind throughout all history is to set them free from sin and from death and from hell and to give them eternal life. And we often think of eternal life as being set free from hell. That's definitely true. But there's the other side to it too. What did Jesus say? This is eternal life that they might know you and the Son whom you sent. In John 17 verse 3. So eternal life is to know God. So Jesus paid the highest price to obtain our greatest good, which is eternal life. And eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ. Why do you think Paul prayed in that previous verse? He prayed that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, meaning in that, that Christ would possess them and occupy them and have a relationship with them to the fullest and greatest degree. And now he says that they may know the love of Christ. And the love of Christ is the length of it. That's just the dimension I used. The, the length of it is God's obtaining our ultimate good, which is eternal life. How do you measure the love of one person for another? When the, the degree of good they obtain for that person. Abraham Lincoln, just to give an example, Abraham Lincoln is often regarded as the greatest of the presidents because he put the whole emancipation proclamation thing through. He set free all the slaves in America. Outside of that one act, he's probably one of the worst presidents America's ever had. But because he accomplished that incredible good for all those people and setting them free from slavery, we say Abraham Lincoln loves the black man. He, di- he didn't die. He worked to set them free from slavery. He accomplished a great good. So we see the love of God for us in the fact that he accomplished for us our greatest good, which is eternal life. And eternal life is to know God deeply and intimately. Which brings us all the way back around. Remember the beginning illustration I used? Ugly guy and the beautiful girl. And the beautiful girl undoes the blindfold and he can see the beauty of this girl he's now going to have a relationship with. And she achieved for him some great good because now they have a great relationship. How much greater is the love of God that worked through the death of Christ to pay for our sin, to take off the blindfold in a sense, to loosen the chains of sin around our ankles and our necks, that we might have eternal life, which is to know Jesus Christ. I said it last week, I'll say it again. God saved us to be in a relationship with Him. 
the deepest, most intimate relationship that the heart of man can ever know. And as it is, the heart of man is not strong enough to be able to exist in that relationship. It must be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in the lives of each of us so that we can have and enjoy that tremendous relationship with God. How immense is the love of Christ? It's immense love to the absolutely undeserving. It's immense love that paid the highest price to set us free. It's immense love that obtained for us the ultimate good, which is to know Jesus Christ deeply and intimately. There is one more, uh, very, very briefly. The depth and the degree of one person's love for another can be seen in their desire for that other person. Did you know this? Take your Bibles and find Zephaniah. If you've got an electronic Bible, you're going to be ahead because it'll probably be easier to find it that way than turning in your Bibles. But Zephaniah chapter 3. Habakkuk, then Zephaniah. And Haggai is after Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17 is a beautiful, beautiful little, uh, it's almost a song in here. Actually, we're going to read Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17. Zephaniah writes, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. You want to know how much God loves you? He exalts, X-U-L-T, not X-A-L-T. He exalts, He rejoices, He delights in you. He delights to bring you into a relationship with you. And then like a lover that loves his wife, God loves us. You put that together with the undeservedness of us and it blows your mind away. It, that's what staggered Dido Moody, so he fell on the ground and crawled on his hands and knees home to consider that he, the most undeserving of all sinners in his mind, God loved him. God paid the highest price to obtain his greatest good that he might know Dwight L. Moody, and Dwight L. Moody might know him. And God delights in us and he rejoices. Can you think of this? God sings songs of joy over us. I remember being at a wedding. It staggers your mind, doesn't it? I was at a wedding and I was uh, one of the groomsmen and my buddy Dave was there. And his wife 
uh, has a beautiful singing voice. And they had it all set up. Nobody knew. And right in the middle of the wedding, if, if she had the emotional strength to do it, she was going to reach out and take the mic off of the preacher. And that signal would cue the sound guy at the back to hit the play button on the backing track. And she was going to sing a song to him right in the middle of their wedding. <laughs> I still remember sitting there. My, my buddy Dave, was he was Mr. Cool. He, he never, got up, never got emotional. He never got, you know, uh, to cry. He was just not done, right? And there's this tear going down his face as his wife was singing this love song to him in front of everybody. God sings a love song over us. We here deserve nothing but His wrath. We here deserve nothing but to be cut off from Him for all of eternity for the first sin that we committed. He paid the highest price that we'd have the greatest good. He set us free. And then He sings songs of love and joy over us as His people. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you, take some time today, this week, throughout prayer week, to meditate on the love of God. It's not a love that gives you everything you want. It gives you the one thing that will satisfy your heart and your soul above and beyond anything else imaginable. He gives us a relationship with Him. And then He sings a song of love over us. How great is the love of God. Would you stand with me? We'll pray and we'll give thanks. And then, uh, can you lead the benediction without a, without a backing track?